Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 11. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph dreamed a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the earth before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the words in mind. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it testifies to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be humble before your word this day. May your spirit help us to understand and perceive it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What are dreams? According to the Disney animated classic Cinderella, a dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. For some of you, when you hear the word dreams, perhaps your mind immediately thinks of the hit song from 1992 by the Cranberries entitled Dreams. One of the definitions that we find in the dictionary reads... A succession of images, thoughts, or emotions passing through the mind during sleep. And perhaps that's the first thing that comes to our minds when we think of dreams as, as something that we experience while sleeping. Sometimes dreams can feel very real, can't they? You know, maybe you've uh, physically reacted while sleeping because something was happening in a dream you were having. You know, have you ever kicked or, or jerked yourself awake because of something you dreamt? Or maybe the emotions that you felt were so tangible that you wake up in a bad mood or afraid or disturbed because of what happened. The comedian Jeff Foxworthy once did a bit recounting the time his wife woke up irritated with him because of something he'd done in the dream she'd had. Or perhaps you've had the experience of awakening and then being immediately disappointed because you realize you've just lost the superpower or special ability you had in your dream. Do you ever analyze your dreams, wondering what different parts might mean or why the person you haven't given a thought to of in years suddenly appeared in your dream? And we dream about things that are in the back of our minds, fears, forgotten things or people, or things we hope for, 
So we really shouldn't put too much effort in figuring out our dreams beyond that. And we certainly shouldn't listen to Freud when it comes to interpreting our dreams. You know, we might say in the vein of Ebenezer Scrooge that our dreams are no more than an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. But that's not the case with Joseph in the text we just heard, is it? Now, his dreams are so much more. They're full of meaning. They're even prophetic. Dreams comprise a significant theme in this last section of Genesis. In the Toledot, the generations of Jacob that are given in chapters 37 to 50. And notice that the first word of Jacob's Toledot is Joseph. This is hardly accidental as it's setting Joseph forth as the seed. Remember, he's the firstborn from Rachel, the queen, the shepherdess, and the younger sister. But also, Rachel was barren. She takes her place in the line of patriarch wives such as Sarah and Rebekah, who were also barren for a time. While Joseph wasn't a miracle baby in the way that Isaac was, there are some direct correlations between the two, even as we'll consider momentarily. But the, the promised seed comes from dead wombs. And according to the pattern established in Genesis and seen, and we see this according to the pattern established here in Genesis and seen elsewhere in Scripture, a, a, a younger son comes on the scene as a replacement for an older one. In verse 2, we're told that Joseph is 17 years old. That's very specific. He's relatively young, though hardly a child. Putting some of the chronological information together, Joseph would have been about six years old when he returned with his father to Canaan. So at this point, Jacob's been back in the land for 11 years. Judah and Joseph were probably about the same age, but Leah's sons Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were certainly older than Joseph. Dan and Naphtali, who were born to Bilhah, were also a bit older than Joseph. But Gad and Asher, born from Zilpah, were younger, as were Issachar and Zebulun, who were born later to Leah. And notice what else is specifically mentioned there about Joseph. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. What that seems to be saying is that he grew up with these brothers. They were about the same age and were playmates, and the implication seems to be that Joseph wasn't close to Leah's sons. Another revealing detail in verse 2 is that, along, is that Joseph, along with his brothers, was a shepherd. Now, this shouldn't come to any great surprise to us. Jacob was a shepherd, so was Joseph's mother, Rachel, as we just noted. Shepherding is the occupation Jacob declares to Pharaoh in chapter 47. And all of his sons, even the oldest, appear to be involved in this family business. And what's the significance, what's the meaning of his being a shepherd? Well, shepherds are guardians. Shepherds are kings. Or perhaps we should say shepherding is the training ground for kings. Of course, David immediately comes to mind and, and should, but certainly we should also think of Jesus as the shepherd king. And although not specifically a king, Moses was a shepherd before becoming the leader of Israel. The scriptures make associations between shepherds and kings with David as the archetype, but we get a glimpse of that here in Joseph. Even more, all of the sons of Israel were shepherds, so there's a sense in which they're all training to be kings, to be rulers in God's creation in fulfillment to God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As one pastor observes, but what we see, uh, but what we begin to see in this passage is the setup of a contrast 
between the faithful shepherd among the sons of Israel and the unfaithful shepherds among the sons of Israel. Something that will be an issue throughout the history of the nation of Israel. And in similar fashion to what we've often had to do when studying certain texts about Jacob, and to some degree Abraham and Isaac, we need to be sure not to be too quick to psychologize the text or think that the the moralistic Sunday school interpretation commonly espoused is the right one. You know, how is Joseph often portrayed in this chapter, in the the text we just read or heard? He's the irritating, snotty-nosed little brother, although he's 17, that runs off to daddy to tell on his older brothers that he's a tattletale. But that's not what's going on here. That's not really anything close to the theology of the text. Maybe Joseph had irritating qualities, but that's not the point of the passage. No, far from being meddlesome, the, the meddlesome little brother, Joseph proves to be a faithful shepherd in contrast to his unfaithful brothers. Joseph delivered a bad report, literally an evil report about his brothers. And it's clearly in relation to their duties as shepherds. We don't know any details about the report. We don't know what the brothers did. But when we consider what they're willing to do later in this chapter to Joseph and what Judah will do in chapter 38 and what the writer has already conveyed to us about Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, it's a fairly safe conclusion that Joseph's brothers had some character issues. They're sexually immoral, murderous. And so for for Joseph to see things that needed to be dealt with, well, it isn't hard to imagine. And sure, this would have been irritating the brothers, but but not because Joseph's report was full of trivial things. Well, that brings us to verse 3, where some further information is revealed. What does Joseph receive? A, A special robe. English translations follow the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament say that it was a robe or coat of many colors. In other words, the idea is that Joseph wore a rainbow. While a cool idea in some senses, the Hebrew word there is unknown and may not mean that he wore a rainbowed colored robe at all. The word may refer to long sleeves of some kind, but again, we don't know for sure. And what's the common interpretation of this verse? Well, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, and so he receives special treatment and favoritism by parents should be avoided because it breeds resentment and so forth. Well, that principle may be true enough, but again, that's not what's really going on here. The first level of application of this text is not about family dynamics and how to avoid conflict. First of all, notice that the name Israel is specifically used in verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Recall that the use of the name Israel can carry a community or corporate connotation. In other words, Jacob isn't acting as a father so much as he's acting as the head of the clan, as the appointed leader of the emerging nation of Israel. This doesn't indicate personal preference. You know, if the text said Jacob loved Joseph, then that would be one thing. But the name Israel is specifically used. Secondly, the fact that Israel is used indicates to us that the love referred to, well, isn't necessarily an emotional paternal love, but an objective Covenantal love. Israel sees the faithfulness of Joseph to the covenant. Joseph tells the truth and doesn't deceive. And so Israel officially acts in accordance with that faithfulness. Thirdly, notice the reason given in the latter part of the verse. Because he was the son of his old age. 
Now, typically we read that to mean that Jacob is a doting father in his old age, a big softy that just loved Joseph and spoils him. But that's not what the text is saying. Strictly speaking, Joseph is not a son of Jacob's old age. It will be Benjamin that is a son of Jacob's old age. So does the writer simply make a mistake? Does he get it wrong? No, it's not a mistake in the text because we have to remember that this isn't the first time this phrase is used in Genesis. In Genesis 21.2, we read, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And then in verse 7, Sarah declares, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son in his old age. Now, Isaac was truly a son of Abraham's old age. But he was also the promised son, the true son, the seed child. And what the writer wants us to do is make connections between Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Joseph. More specifically, that Joseph should remind us of Isaac. How so? Joseph is the seed born from a barren mother. He is the seed child, just like Isaac was. So what does this have to do with Israel loving Joseph more than his other children? Once again, let's go back to uh, go, go back in Genesis uh, to get some, some further clues. In chapter 15, uh, 25, we read of Isaac loving Esau and Rebekah loving Jacob. The parents weren't merely picking favorites. Their love revealed their true loyalties particularly in relation to God's revealed plan. In other words, his word concerning the covenant heir. As one scholar notes, Isaac loved Esau, lining himself up with the covenant-despising son. Rebekah loved Jacob, the one whom God had chosen and revealed to be the heir of the blessing. And Jacob was faithful to and loved God's covenant. Here, Joseph is more faithful than all his brothers. Israel loves him because Joseph is a faithful son, while his other sons are not regarding God's covenant and their responsibilities to it as they ought. With that broader covenantal theme in mind, then let's give some more specifics. Let's look at some more specifics in relation to the robe that Joseph receives from Israel. First of all, the word may be more accurately translated as tunic. And this, uh, this tunic may simply... Well, does it simply... Is it simply a present? Is it simply an extravagant gift. No, as, as you can probably guess, this tunic was a sign of authority. It was the clothing of office. And what does it indicate? That Joseph has a position of rule and authority over his brothers. Even though he's not the oldest of Israel's sons, he is the firstborn from Rachel. Joseph is the prince, and his father is putting him in a position of rule, even though he's only 17 years old. Garments have a notable role throughout the Joseph story. And there's significant symbolism related to garments in chapters 37 to 50. But let's, let's consider a few of, of the details here a bit more closely. Now, as already mentioned, the term translated multicolored is debatable. The only other time this word is used in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 13, verses 18 and 19, in reference to the garment worn by Tamar, David's daughter, who was a princess. Clearly, the garment marked her out according to her station, her position as a daughter of the king. So in some form or fashion, Joseph's robe similarly, his tunic similarly, marks him out. The word tunic that is used is hardly accidental. It appears seven times in this chapter, one time in this section and six times in verses 12 to 36. So there's an emphasis placed upon this tunic. 
But of even further interest, this word tunic is used one other time in the book of Genesis. In chapter 3 and verse 21. And Yahweh made for Adam and his wife tunics of skin and clothed them. Now remember, Adam and Eve attempted to make their garments out of fig leaves, but then God came and clothed them, giving them tunics to restore them to the office to which he'd called them, even to the priestly service to which he'd called them. Later, this word for tunic is used to refer mainly to priestly garb and their special attire for their office. As one pastor helpfully states, the priests of the tabernacle temple were guardians of God's house. They were the ones called to protect God's house, God's garden. They were to do with God's house what Adam was to do with the Garden of Eden, serve and guard it. There's a parallel here between Joseph and Adam and the priests who will come later. Joseph is shown to be a faithful guardian. He has tended and protected the garden. Later, in an ironic twist, his brothers will, will be characterized as wild beasts, verse 33, who attacked and tore Joseph to pieces, leaving only a bloody and leaving only a bloody shred of a tunic. Joseph has already warned his father that there are wild beasts in the garden, his brothers, when he gave the evil report. This is something Adam should have done. When the beast came into the garden, Adam should have gone to his father. He didn't, but Joseph does. Joseph is a faithful guardian of the garden, a new Adam who works and protects the sanctuary house of God. Because he is faithful here, God will exalt him to greater positions in the world, but it starts right here. Well, in verse 4, the brother's reaction is recorded for us, and when they saw, remember in the in, in the Bible, seeing is making, uh, making judgment with your eyes, that, that Joseph was given this position of authority. They hated him and could not speak peace to him. Three times mention is made of their hatred for Joseph, which leads to deep resentment or jealousy in verse 11. While there's probably some degree of emotion to this hatred, the root of the meaning has more to do with the reaction, or sorry, with the rejection of the covenant and the rejection of Joseph's position. They couldn't speak peace to him. Why not? Because they couldn't, they wouldn't respect Joseph's status. They reject his status among them, and so there's no peace. How are they treating Joseph? As an enemy. And by good and necessary consequence, they're rejecting Israel, they're rejecting Jacob, who appointed Joseph to this position. So you can't simply reject the authority of the Son without also rejecting the authority of the Father. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kind of reminds you of Jesus' experience amidst the Jewish leaders, the other sons of Israel, doesn't it? Well, we've considered Joseph the shepherd to a degree and Joseph the son. And that brings us to Joseph the dreamer in verses 5 through 11. In verse 5, we're told that Joseph dreamed a dream. Q. Fantine and Les Miserables. And that he told it to his brothers. They hated him for his dreams and words. Again, in verse 9, Joseph dreamed a dream and told it to his brothers. Then in verse 10, he told it to his father. And then in verse 11, jo Jacob kept the words in mind. There's a subtle emphasis in the text on Joseph speaking. And what does he speak? The dreams that he's seen. And what are the dreams? God's revelation to him. 
And a point that we do well to keep in mind in this last section of Genesis is that Joseph figures things out based on what God had spoken to prior generations. As one theologian puts it, Joseph had access to what God had done in the past, how God had spoken in the past, what God had said in the past, and based on that, when he got these dreams, he could reason from the previous revelation and the new circumstances what God was saying. And this really matches the situation we find ourselves in and foreshadows the completion of the Bible and how we live in the new creation. See, Joseph doesn't ever get any new revelation, we might say. God never directly speaks to Joseph as he did to Abraham and Jacob. And then also notice in Joseph's recounting of the dreams, the repetition of the word, behold, used uh, used five times, three times when recounting the first dream and two times when recounting the second. It vividly engages the brothers to see what Joseph is describing and provides a certain rhythm to the text. So what is revealed in these two dreams, these two dreams that act as two witnesses? Well, notice that the first dream takes place in the context of a field, that which comes from the fruit of the ground. Recall that man comes from the ground and corresponds to the ground, and things that come from the ground can be representative of man, such as the thorn or tree or wheat. We don't know what the sheaves were comprised of, but the fact that Joseph and his brothers were binding the sheaves indicates work. Taking dominion over the earth. Creation is being developed. And what happens? The sheaves of the brothers gathered around the sheaf of Joseph and bowed down to it. Then get this. The brothers didn't hesitate in what they understood the dream to mean, to what it symbolized. They knew that it meant Joseph would rule and reign over them. In a sense, he was already somewhat in such a position, but they clearly balk at the thought of it. We also need to remember that Joseph isn't acting like a brat and condescendingly saying, brothers, guess what I just dreamed. That's not what's going on here. The dreams equal God's revelation, and Joseph acts as God's mouthpiece. And how do the brothers react to this revelation? They hate Joseph even more. And note well what the text says, for his dreams and words. Put the pieces together. The brothers reject God's word that comes through Joseph. Then in verses 9 to 11, Joseph's second dream takes place in the heavens. These dreams encompass earth and heaven. And there may very well be some deliberate echoes of Jacob's experience at Bethel and the stairway Jacob saw that was set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. In fact, the mention of uh, of Joseph's sheaf standing straight or upright is the same language used in chapter 28, verses 12 and 13 of the, the stairway and the Lord standing beside it. So what are the details of this second dream? The sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to Joseph. Then Joseph tells the dream to Jacob, his father, who rebukes him. But notice what Jacob perceives to be the interpretation. Again, they understand how the symbolism works. They were well-versed in typology. That he and Rachel and all the brothers would come and bow down uh, themselves to the ground before him. And although Jacob initially rebuked Joseph, he kept the words in mind. He didn't dismiss the dream, the revelation of God as the brothers did. 
Jacob was a dreamer before Joseph. He has some first-hand experience with this kind of thing and shows a measure of wisdom and discernment about it. Now, there are a couple of uh, snags with this dream that we, n- we need to attempt to work out, but let's remind ourselves of some key principles. In the creation of the world on the fourth day, the sun, moon, and stars are set up for signs and seasons and for days and years, and the sun and moon are for ruling over the day and night. They're governors. The scriptures then take this kind of imagery and apply it to human rulers, even as we see in the prophetic books as well as in the New Testament. In Isaiah 13, the fall of the kingdom of Babylon is referred to as the stars or the constellations not giving their light and the sun and moon being put out. Much of what Jesus has to say about the destruction of Jerusalem is couched in this language. Jesus in John's revelation refers to the passage of the churches in Asia Minor as seven stars in his right hand. And Paul even refers to believers as stars, as lights in Philippians 2.15. Now, given Jacob's reply to Joseph about the dream, we are safe to conclude that Rachel is still alive at this point. Yes, we read about the death of Rachel in chapter 35, but again, Genesis is not necessarily arranged in a strictly chronological fashion. However, Rachel won't outlive, uh, won't, sorry, won't live to make the journey to Egypt where Jacob and company would bow down before Joseph. Furthermore, 11 stars bow before Joseph, but Benjamin hasn't been born yet. No one seems to be asking who is the 11th star. Some make a decent case that the stars are referring to the constellations, which have correspondence to the nation of Israel, and there's some things worth considering in that interpretation. However, Jacob's interpretation of the dream is right there in the text for us to read. And this is the second dream that Joseph has, the second witness. The first dream had to do with the brothers bowing down before him, and the second dream picks up on that same thing, but then adds the parents to the mix. Even if some of the specifics don't work nice and neatly for us, the point is still made by both dreams. A time is coming when Joseph will be the preeminent ruler in the family. A time is coming when Joseph will be elevated to a position over Jacob and his wives and over his brothers. Jacob begins to accept this, to submit to this truth. The brothers, however, only deepen in their hatred for Joseph, evidenced in the rest of the chapter, which hopefully we'll consider next week. Well, what are some further principles or aspects of this story that we can consider and the bearing that they have on our lives as believers? First, that sometimes being faithful and doing what is right and speaking the truth can result in people hating you whether in the world, in your own family, or even among other believers. Joseph acted like a faithful shepherd. He cared about the covenant and about righteousness and about the calling he and his brothers had as the sons of Jacob, sons of the man to whom Yahweh had made profound promises. When you care about the things of God, when you seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, when you endeavor after faithfulness, that won't necessarily be met with applause or approval. In his faithfulness to his heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus said hard things and took actions that were met with a great deal of disapproval and sometimes hatred. You know, as we follow the Savior, we should not be surprised if there are times when we experience the same. When we call sin, sin, graciously yet firmly declaring 
that there are habitual sins and practices, that there are lifestyles that when pursued, which result in a man or a woman not inheriting the kingdom of God. Even as Paul delineates in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, such as sexual immorality, homosexuality, idolatry, drunkenness, and stealing. When we advocate for that truth, and we can expect resistance, disdain, and hatred. When we hold fast to the fact that there are only two sexes, a man and a woman, when we declare that abortion is murder, that it should be an illegal act, and that those who participate in such a brutal act are murderers, then we, well, we can expect the ire of the opposition. If you've happened to watch any of the video clips of recent months where pro-life and pro-abortion advocates have come into close contact with one another at various rallies then you know something of the utter bile that is spewed forth from the pro-murder side as they even wish violence on their opponents. They're given over to their idols. They've become like what they worship. They've embraced an old form of paganism that's dressed up in modern terms. But it's an old lie nonetheless. So be ready for the opposition. Steal your thoughts and minds ahead of time and converse with your children about these things and help them be prepared as well. Second, you cannot despise the authority of Jesus without also despising the authority of the Father. For the brothers to reject Joseph was for them to reject Israel, their father. Israel gave Joseph authority, and the brothers should have respected it. Jesus emphasized this about his own authority when he was questioned about it, even as we read in John 5 as one example. He was given authority by his father, and to reject his authority was to reject the authority the father of the father who had sent him. You can't say you love God the Father, but reject Jesus. It doesn't work that way, even though there's a sense in which we see this consistently expressed in our own culture. You know, there are people who will declare that they believe in God, but don't submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They refuse to bow the knee to him. John declares in his first epistle, no one who denies the Son has the Father. You can't have the one without the other. And we have to recognize where this inevitably leads. The exclusivity that Jesus demands over and against all other religions, whether Judaism, Islam, etc. There may be some common ground we can find with them on certain moral issues. We may find them as allies when it comes to this or that piece of legislation, but without exclusive allegiance to Jesus, then that alliance can only go so far. Antithesis has existed in this world since the Lord declared that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And living in in and with that antithesis is something we need to remember as believers, as those whose allegiance is exclusive to the Son of God. And third and finally, we need to respond appropriately, submissively, to the revelation of God, His Word. Sometimes we don't like what we hear, especially when our sin is exposed, when it's pointed out. And I'm not only talking about what you may hear from the pulpit or in a sermon online or in a podcast or whatever. In God's Word, the truth can come to you from another brother or sister in the Lord. And most certainly it can come from your spouse who perhaps sees your sin more clearly than you do and speaks to it. Consider, 
How do you receive God's revelation in a moment like that? When Scripture is brought to bear upon your life. Maybe you become indignant and are tempted to respond, probably within your own mind. Who does he think he is? He's a self-righteous jerk. What's she she doing going around pointing out sin in other people's lives? I'm sure that if she had a video recording her life and we could see into her heart, she'd be... We'd be point, she wouldn't be pointing out the sins of others. That may very well be, but is what has been pointed out true? You know, if their analysis is consistent with Scripture, and there's a problem in your life, then you need to handle it properly and not simply reject the messenger. You need to humble yourself under the Word of God that has come to you. I was told a story once of a session meeting that took place where a complaint of some sort uh, was made against the pastor and that complaint was being discussed and there really wasn't any substance to the accusation being leveled against him and one of the elders proposed that they go over to the fellow's house and just kick his butt and whether or not there was consensus for that course of action I don't recall but, but the pastor, a godly and eminent man basically said no This is from the Lord, and we need to receive it as such. In other words, there might not be a shred of truth to this man's claim, but we need to take it as coming from the Lord and give it due consideration and be humble. Perhaps the pastor had in mind the example of David enduring the curses of Shimei as he was fleeing Jerusalem on account of Absalom, as recorded in 2 Samuel 16. Isaiah tells us that the Lord looks to the one who is broken and crushed of spirit and who trembles at his word. So let us be those who can receive God's word, who can receive correction, even if the message is hard for us to hear, or regardless of the messenger from whom it comes. Joseph's dreams, Joseph's words are set before us. That the dreams and words of the greater Joseph, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God the Father. May we listen and receive them as such this day. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for the marvelous way in which your word is written and how you would impress the truth upon our hearts, our lives, our souls, that we might be a people who reflect the truth who are ministers of the truth, even as those who would spread the light of the truth to the world. May we indeed be those who are humble and crushed of spirit and who tremble at your word. May we receive it well. And may in receiving it well, bear even greater fruit fruit to your glory and to your honor. Help us in these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.